0: You're listening to the Cyberwire network, powered by N2K.
1: Fishing is one of those perennial things that everyone observes, uh, especially those working in the information security space. But they seem to be cyclical, thematic, if you will.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me, as always, is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my discussion with Jeff Nathan. He's the director of threat research at Norton Labs. We're discussing their most recent concern, Consumer Cyber Safety Pulse Report. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we have a little bit of follow-up on mm-hmm. something you and I were scratching our heads about on one of our recent shows. And our right. kind, several of our kind listeners wrote in with an explanation. What do we got here?
2: So uh, the first one comes from a tweet from, oh, I'm going to botch this last name, <laughs> Daniel Arroni. Quaroni, I believe. Quarroni, yeah. yes. Daniel Quaroni, Uh, And his username on Twitter is at Daniel Quaroni. And he says, at Bittner, which is, I guess he's tagging you. Yep. Uh, quote, do the needful was a UK phrase that has fallen out of use, but is still common in India. So it is an English phrase.
0: Right. So to, just to back up a bit, we were wondering on, I believe it was a catch, recent catch of the day. Yes. It, it included this phrase, do the needful. Right. And I think we suspected that it was uh, uh, some sort of automated translation. Correct. Because uh, neither of us were familiar with it.
2: We had, it was strange to our ears. Yes. Uh, another listener named Neville actually wrote uh, an email in. He, Neville is a citizen of India. Mm. And he wrote to say that it is the equivalent of saying, hoping that you oblige. Okay. Right? Like, thank you in advance is what we say here in the U.S., I guess. Thanks Mm -hmm. in advance. That's what I say anyway. Uh, (laughs) Neville notes that this may not be a translation. This is actually a a colloquialism in India. Right. 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 Okay.
0: Well, good to know. I, I was not aware of that. I don't think I've heard that before. So
2: I have not. No.
0: Thanks to our uh, kind listeners for sending that in. For doing uh, the needful. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We appreciate it. And of course, we'd love to hear from you. If you have something uh, that you believe requires our attention, you can send us a note to hackinghumans at cyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into some stories here. Why don't you start things off for us?
2: Dave, my story comes from Lawrence Abram at Bleeping Computer. Hmm. Uh, He has a story about a guy named Mr. Dox, who is a penetration tester. Okay. Right? So companies hire him to come in and try to uh, break into their systems. Yeah. Uh, And he had been using remote proxies, or reverse proxies, rather, to get around multi-factor authentication for accounts. Okay. Explain that to me. A reverse proxy is an attack where... Uh I'm not exactly sure how it works yeah. but essentially you get the user to open up a proxy that you control okay uh but that has a fingerprint to it that is uh easy for these service providers like Gmail and LinkedIn to see okay. and when they see that you're connected through a reverse proxy they will refuse connection or they say they won't let you log in or I think LinkedIn actually disables your account huh so uh he needed a new way to do it Hmm. A new a new way to uh, get around multi-factor authentication. Okay, and this guy, being a creative uh, penetration tester, right, has come up with a way to do it that is remarkably effective, in my opinion. Hmm. Okay, so there's a tool out there called VNC. I don't know what that stands for, but it's essentially like a remote desktop. Yeah. All right, uh, and it's uh, available for Linux systems. And it's available as uh, part of the package system with a lot of distributions. I think it's available on Ubuntu. Uh, if it's available on Ubuntu, it's probably available on a bunch of other ones as well. Cause and Ubuntu, I think VNC stands for Virtual Network Computing. Okay. So it lets you, what that does essentially is you can then connect to another computer and it looks like you're sitting at the desktop. So, I mean, it's very much like remote desktop if you're sure. not familiar with it at all.
0: A handy, legitimate tool.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but he has paired it with a browser. Right, Mm -hmm. and browsers have a feature called kiosk mode, Mm. which lets you run. It's designed. It's another legitimate feature that lets you run a web browser as if that's the only thing the computer does. So think of a kiosk like in a mall. Yeah, you walk up to. Who goes to malls anymore,
0: Dave? Uh, (laughs) Like my kids.
2: Right. (laughs) You walk up. (laughs) You walk up to the kiosk, and it's there. Well, that's probably a Windows machine or some machine with a web browser, and you're just looking at a web app. Yeah, and that's how you're interacting with it. Mm -hmm. So. The other tool he's using is something called No VNC. So I know it's going to get confusing in terms here, but <laughs> VNC is actually the the connection software. Yeah, No VNC is a JavaScript client for that connection software. Okay, you see where I'm going with this, Dave? I'm following you. Okay, so here's how this works. Mr. Docs sets up a VNC server with a browser running in kiosk mode, mm-hmm. right? Then he sets up a web server with no VNC running that connects to that browser running in kiosk mode. Okay. Then he sends a phishing email to somebody with a link to the web server running no VNC connecting to the VNC instance that is running a web browser in kiosk mode. Hmm. So when the user sees it, it looks to them like they've loaded a web page. Mm. Because before he sends the phishing email, he's gone to like maybe Gmail's login page or maybe the company he's attacking, uh, he's doing the penetration test. He's gone to their login page. Whatever their system is for logging in, he's loaded that on the page. I see. So when the user clicks the link, they're talking to a server that is then talking to his VNC server that looks just like the web login for the company's email because it is the web login for the company's email. Okay. So when the user sees the multi-factor authentication code, you know, enter your 6-digit code from your authentication app or what we just sent you via text. Right. They enter that and he has lo- they essentially what's happened is the user has unwittingly logged in for the malicious actor. Essentially connected to a computer that the malicious actor controls and logged in on their account for them.
0: So is is Mr. Docs here acting as a man in the middle? And logging all of the keystrokes to gather, you know, the, the the login information and the multi-factor code.
2: Well, the multi-factor code is only good once, right? Right. right. Uh, but he's not actually. I mean, Lawrence Abrams' article links to the actual disclosure from Mr. Docs about this. And, okay. And he says here, here, Mr. Docs says uh, the ways that this can be abused are endless. Mm. Right. You can have you can have JavaScript injected into the browser. You can have an HTTP proxy connected to the browser that starts logging everything, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, yes, you could start logging keystrokes. You could close the VNC session when the user uh, when the user connects and then just take over.
0: Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Okay. All right. right. Yep. So yep.
2: you've got that. Now you're, you know, you, you shut down the web server and you open another one that you control and you're logged in as that user and there's right. not much the user can do.
0: So they logged in for you. Exactly. Then you pull the plug on them. Yep. But you're still logged in and have access to their account. Correct. Wow.
2: So uh, I, it's not stated in this article, but I think that a, uh, a physical multi-factor authentication token would not work on this attack. So if you're using something like a Google Titan or a YubiKey or anything that uses the FIDO open protocol or standard, uh, I don't know that that would – I don't think that would work on this. Because it wouldn't pass through? It wouldn't pass through, exactly. Huh. The request would be coming to your to your key from the hacker-controlled website, mm-hmm. uh, which means that when your key goes to generate the the private keys – it will use the hacker generator website and the challenge response will give an incorrect response and Google will say, no, that's not the right response. Something hinky's going on here. Okay. So I know I don't like getting tech, we don't like getting technical in this podcast, but this was so cool. <laughs> Too late. Too late, <laughs> right. This was so cool. This is such a, a remarkably good hack. And this is why when I say use multi-factor authentication, um, that there are three different types of it in general. And the most secure one is a hardware token. And Mm -hmm. that will, I'm almost positive that will protect you from this. I've got to do a little more reading on it, but uh, Mm. it's, this is why we say that SMS messages and the, uh, the codes that you get from an app from, you know, the time-based codes are less secure than the, uh, than the other attacks. Now, because this would work against a
0: time-based code as well. Yeah, it would.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It would let, it would work against a time-based code.
0: Huh. (laughs) So, is the answer to this in terms of protecting yourself? Is it simply have a hardware key?
2: Yeah, get a YubiKey or or something comparable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I say YubiKey a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only say that because they're the ones I know. If anybody has a recommendation for another key that implements FIDO or a similar protocol, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, uh, Titan, Google Titan also works. Mm-hmm. Um, you
0: know, it's, it's isn't that just a re- rebranded
2: YubiKey? I it's think the it's same. A, it's well, it's Google. Google's hardware, okay, uh, but it's it uses the same, uh, the same like open protocol, o- open protocol. I don't know what it is. it's 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 a standard, the open yeah. standard. It yeah. uses the same open standard for authentication. Okay, it's basically a challenge response. Yeah. So uh, uh, the way a cryptographic challenge response works, I'll go into that a little bit. This is kind of easy to understand. Uh, if I have a, a private key and I give you the public key, uh, and I say, okay, you give me any random number, yeah. right? And I'll give it to you, and I will do something to it with my private key that you can verify with my public key. Mm. So the, the operation should be the same, right? So, for example, you can encrypt a message to me with my, uh, with my public key that only I can decrypt, right? I see. So if you say, uh, I'm going to encrypt the number 7 with Joe's public key, and then you send me the number 10, right yeah and i get that and i run the operation with my private key and i say oh that should be 7 then you know how you know that it that i have the private key
0: so i have your public key and i right. encrypt something using it i can't then decrypt it using the public key no
2: it's a, it's a one way algorithm that's the right. the nature of public and private keys
0: right right all right. Well, uh, an interesting uh, story for sure. We'll have a link interesting to that. Attack. If Mr. Wanna... Docs,
2: thanks for publishing this. It's a great article that he wrote as well. If you want to get down the low technical weeds and, and learn how to do this, take a look at the link in the uh, in the bleeping computer article.
0: All right. My story this week uh, actually comes from the BBC. Uh, this is uh, a, a, a long-term investigation. Some of their folks did. Uh, this is uh, from Leo Sands, Katrin Nye, Divya Talwar and Benjamin Lister were all the journalists who worked on this report.
2: That's a big group of journalists from the report. It is,
0: and it's called Jobfished, the con that tricked dozens into working for a fake design agency. Really? Yeah. So um, this is about a gentleman who goes by the name of Ali Ayad, and according to this report from the BBC, um, allegedly he had spun up a design agency that he called Mad Bird Incorporated,
2: mm-hmm.
0: a digital design firm in London. And he had recruited uh, over 40 people to work for him uh, with this company. Uh, actually, and and over the period of time, the, more than that, I, I believe it even approached about 100 people working wow. for this company. Um, but the way that he hired them was with uh, – Contracts that said that their initial probationary period, six months, uh-huh. would be commission only, after which they would become full-time employees. Right. And and let's put this all in the framework and the perspective that this was also happening during the COVID pandemic. Right. So people— People are probably
2: desperate for jobs. They're
0: looking for work. Uh, they can work from home. These are all remote jobs. And so— uh, They were this mad bird company, and uh, in particular, this gentleman, uh, Ali Ayad, was attracting lots of people to work for this organization. Um, He had uh, an impressive uh, background on his LinkedIn and and his bio on the company's website, saying that he had uh, quite a design uh, history, uh, work as a professional designer, uh, working for companies like Nike, uh, lots of big-name companies. And people were all on board. And evidently, he was running the company as if it were a real company. Uh, they had an active Slack channel. Uh, he, would be, he was engaged with his employees. And I, I guess I'm, I need to put employees in right. air quotes. Because uh, as they approached this sort of six-month period where people were expecting to get paid, it, it all kind of unwound. And it turns out there was no company. There were no clients. Uh, All of the the portfolios, the the sample work that uh, they were using to try to to drum up business was all stolen from other companies. Uh, What's
2: what's his plan here? What's his what's his? Well, that's
0: one of the sort of mysteries about this story. Is they're not exactly sure. I mean, they 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 speculate that maybe he did intend to have this be. A real company, uh-huh. and was just going about it in uh, you know, a way that was not on the up and up, right. <laughs> and and he ran out of time. That he maybe he was legitimately hoping that in the six month window that he sort of bought himself by having these odd employment contracts with people that would be enough to win enough business to get this thing actually off the ground. Right? Um, they speculate that maybe he was just in it for the thrill of doing of running this con. Huh. And it was a con. Um, this guy also had a very, he was very active on social media. Um, there's, a, there's an example in here where he shared a, a photo of himself from his modeling career okay. inside an issue of GQ magazine, a full page ad that he was the model for. Okay. And the folks uh, from the BBC who did their research found that that ad never existed.
2: <laughs> I'm looking at the pictures right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a picture of him. Uh, Photoshopped into an actual magazine. Yeah. So I mean, there's a magazine laying on a table, and the actual picture is of a watch ad.
0: Right. The yeah, the actual magazine on that page. Right. Had a picture of a watch. No humans in the picture at all. Right. But the picture he was sharing around on social media was just him. Right. You know, nicely dressed and and you know, handsome guy. Um. Also, uh, turns out that at least half a dozen of the senior. Uh, officers in this company were made-up personas. They Didn't were people exist. who did not exist. Uh-huh. They were photos that were scraped from all over the web. One of them was a, a, a stock image from Getty Images. Another one they tracked down was a gentleman named uh, McCall Kalis, who turns out is a beehive maker. <laughs> right? So— yeah,
2: that's that's remarkable.
0: Yeah. So the sad part of this story is that you have dozens of employees who were working in good faith. They were basically financing their own uh, existence through money they borrowed. Some of them took out credit cards and so on and so yeah. forth. And multiple yeah. these folks are interviewed in this story. As I was reading this, I was thinking about how you know, to me, this is a prime example of the sunk cost fallacy. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, as as time goes on, these folks have sunk their time and their resources into the belief that this is going to pan out. And they don't want to cut loose because if they do, they'll lose all of that. Right. So they keep hoping that it's going to pan out. And, of course, it, it never did. Um, the article points out that many of the folks here are embarrassed have been caught up in it. Yeah. We, that's a common thread here we have. So they're less likely to report, you know, the company for, for not being on the up and up. Right. Uh, the BBC actually confronted this gentleman, uh, Ali. Oh, they found him. They found him. Uh, there's a video of them confronting him. And, uh, you know, he's slippery. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, he says things like, uh, well, some of the things were true. Some of the things were exaggerations. Some of the things were lies. And uh, he promised several times to sit down with an interview with them. And, of course, that never came to pass. Right. Uh, and he's uh, seems to have slipped away.
2: Has he broken any laws?
0: Uh, well... That's a good question. Yeah. I would imagine, well, certainly uh stealing all the other companies' assets, all of right. their and representing them as his own.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's that might that's be fraud. Yeah, that's fraud, I guess. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: So I imagine he's violated several things in employment law and uh again, pr- fraud probably being the top one, but, Right. uh you know I'm not this all happened in the UK, so I don't not up on what the specifics would be, but uh
2: we need a barrister.
0: Uh, <laughs> we'll see we'll see if he gets run down here and, and if he actually gets brought to justice. Um, but you know the what really caught my eye about this story was this whole notion, you know, as as they call it job fished, right. Um, and I think as we've got more remote jobs, Uh, this I think is the most elaborate of these sorts of scams that I've seen, but it's not the first one we've seen. No, No, it's not. People getting seen uh, a lot of these.
2: Yeah. And we're going to only see more of these as time goes on because, uh, one of the things the pandemic has done is a lot of office space is now going to remain vacant, right? Yeah. Companies have said, well, if I don't, you know, some companies have said, if I don't have to pay for office space and people will gladly give me part of their house for (laughs) (laughs) what they're doing. (laughs) Right. Uh and pay for their own electricity and everything. Why would I pay for my own office space? Yeah. Um and I I you know and, and that's kind of a benefit for the employee too, right? Mm-hmm, sure. They get to stay home if they like. Uh yeah. you know, get to have your your dogs in your office all the time.
0: Yeah, no commute time, all no that stuff. No commute
2: time. That's a real a real time suck a commute. Yeah. Um so you know, it, I, I think it's a it's a a happy medium. I not I'm not upset with it, but the situation does lend itself to exactly this kind of scam. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah. I
0: think it's noteworthy also that uh this person, you know, had so much other stuff out there that if that like on social media. So if right. you wanted to do your homework,
2: yeah, if you and, did your due diligence, you'd you'd find what you were looking for. Right.
0: There was an active website full right. of employees. Uh the LinkedIn profile had all sorts of praise from people that this person had had, uh, you know, allegedly worked with in the past and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So um this would not be an easy one to track down as being
2: Right a scam. Yeah, I think the only tip off is that you're starting as a six month contract employee on commission only. Right. Um, right. And that that to me, you know, I, when I have when I've been doing job searches, yeah. uh, when people say it's a it's a six month temp to perm position, I tell them no. Yeah. I, I tell them no, and I, I've always told them no because I've always been suspicious of that. Mm. That it's that. There's some kind of scam behind it. And it's probably completely legitimate. They're pro- and I can absolutely see a business reason why you want that, right? Yeah. You want to try somebody out for six months and then, okay, bring them on board. Mm-hmm. Make sure they're not somebody who is completely misrepresented themselves as an employee. Yeah. Uh, because then you have an employee that you can't, uh, you know, that you have uh, you have to manage, right? Right. But it's a lot easy. It's just as easy to say we have a six month probationary period mm-hmm. where if it doesn't work out, we just part ways. Yeah, I, I mean, and that and that to me, I've I've accepted those kind of engagements. Yeah, right, but not a uh, not a temp to perm situation.
0: Yeah. Or the flip, the flip side to this that I've seen is I've seen uh, social media stories about scammers who have taken on multiple remote jobs at the same time. Yeah, and for example, someone will will take a job as being a developer or a programmer. Right, and they'll say, "I take on the job." It takes them about six weeks to figure out that I am no good at the job, right? <laughs> right. In that amount of time, I have collected X number of paychecks. They fire me. I move on. But, you know, if I have four or five of these going at the same time, and right. I'm just turning over and churning and churning and churning, um, you know, profit, make millions right. before people catch on. Right. Um,
2: you know, that, that can only last so long because you do need your real identity to apply for a job,
0: yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Word gets around, yeah. but, uh, you know, I guess that's the flip side to this sort of scam. It goes both ways, and this right. is the new world we're in yep. with remote work. So be vigilant, be right? vigilant,
2: right. <laughs> and watch out for that sunk cost fallacy. You know, if you're not seeing any any money coming out of anything, you know, understand that you've lost some time. Okay. Yeah. Time to walk away, I think. Yep. Yep. It's tough to do that, though. It's really tough to walk away from a sunk cost, but you're vested. emotionally vested. Absolutely.
0: All right. We will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Our catch of the day comes from a listener named Randy who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe. You get top billing this time, Dave. (laughs) Love the show. As well you should, by the way. I saw this email in my spam box today and thought you might enjoy it. I'm unsure what the end goal is here, but whatever it is, I had a great laugh. Uh, This one is a kind of short one, but we'll have some discussion afterwards. So why don't you read the email? It comes from Gmail, and Gmail has flagged it as suspicious. Uh Uh-huh. So it comes from –
0: the return address on this is email department. Right. No T at the end of of it, and the actual – Email address is just a string of random characters at a I don't know generic.com address. Could, right, could be anything. Uh, and then it says, "Why is this message in spam? It is similar to messages that were identified as spam as the pa- in the past." So that I suppose I suspect from Gmail, right? Right. They've, yep. They've That's flagged from it. Gmail. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then it's uh, below. It says, "Please confirm your unsubscription to remove your email from our list by replying unsub to this email." Thank you. Right. Okay.
2: What do you think is going on here, Dave?
0: I don't know. What what do you think is going on here? I
2: think somebody has a list of email addresses. This is a spammer. Yeah. Right? And they're trying to validate the list of email addresses. Uh, I see. Right? Yep. Uh they're sending out messages that uh, that when they get bounced back, they'll go okay. I'll take that email off the list. Mm-hmm. And if somebody replies unsub, they go this one goes to the top of the list.
0: I see. Right. Because mm-hmm. not only does this
2: person have an email, but they're checking it and uh, and they're silly enough to go ahead and reply to an unsolicited unsubscribe email
0: address. Right. And so then they could either use this for s- for spamming or they could sell the list as a more valuable Correct. verified list. Yep. Yeah.
2: That's my suspicion. Okay. No,
0: I like it. It's good. All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending that in. Uh, We would love to hear from you. Our email is hackinghumans at com. If you have something you'd like for us to consider on the air, send it to us. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Nathan. He is the Director of Threat Research at Norton Labs. Uh, They recently released uh, their Consumer Cyber Safety Pulse Report, and that was the center of our conversation. Here's my talk with Jeff Nathan.
1: What drives these pulse reports is this collection of telemetry we have, sort of a, a weather station, if you will. The sort of things that our various products see, as well as some positional data, Trying to lick our finger, stick it up into the wind, and get a sense of which way things are blowing.
0: Well, I, I suppose I mean it's no surprise that you all have a, a good view of the sorts of things that um, that are facing consumers out there. Can we go through some of the things that bubbled to the top here in, in this edition of the report? What caught your eye? Sure,
1: there there are there are a number of themes that sort of shook out of this most recent version. Naturally. Phishing is one of those perennial things that everyone observes, uh, especially those working in the information security space, but they seem to be cyclical, thematic, if you will. There are certain themes and lures that pop up at different times of the year, and themes around um, tax credits, things around uh, taxes, and specifically around you know, COVID themes have been pretty strong, especially as we get to the end of the year and people are preparing to file their taxes in the U.S.
0: Yeah. One of the things that caught my eye was uh, the the things that you all tracked in terms of uh, people being tracked by their own browsers, their browsing histories, that there's all these online trackers. Can you give us some insights there of of what you all uh, discovered? Sure. So there there has been a lot of
1: research into really sophisticated tracking techniques that have been developed in an attempt to bypass the protections built into the browsers. And just as a bit of background, the major browser creators, that is, you know, Firefox, their foundation, and and uh, Google's Chromium that then feeds into Chrome and whatnot, they all have initiatives out there trying to build a better browser to protect people who use them from being tracked. But just as that is happening, there is also a bit of an arms race in developing more sophisticated tracking techniques because advertisers drive so much of the commerce on the internet. And so through some pretty intense research, we were looking at some of the ways that people are being tracked in their browsers that evade the protections built into the browsers. That work led to some... Novel discoveries that then fed into some of our work that is now being driven out to our customers.
0: Well, can you describe some of that to us? I mean, what sort of things are going on under the hood there?
1: It's interesting that you ask this. This is a, there's sort of a very timely element to this. But to be a little bit more specific, there are all of the things on the surface of the browser that people, even those who aren't super technical, can imagine. You know, there there is what you're visiting, where you're coming from and the individual flavor of your browser. Are you running that browser on a popular operating system? Is it a popular browser? But then there's this tension between the information that your browser presents and where it came from, right? So so browsers are sort of big engines designed to parse the information that comes into them and and render them to the person using it. But where that information comes from kind of dictates how the browser is going to treat that information, and you get this sense of sort of, first party versus third party, and specifically with cookies. Also in that mix is to consider that web pages are sort of composed like a bento box of sushi, if you will. What Mm. might look to someone as a single page might have content that comes from all over the place. So when the browser goes to render all that content, depending on where it came from and where it's being referred to, the browser will apply a bunch of different rules to it. So knowing that, people who are in the business of tracking information have been trying to capitalize on the rules that the browser applies and to trick the browser into treating some of this third-party information as first-party information. Um, and that's because the, the browser builds a bunch of rules around that. And so this is part of that arms race. We determined that you know on the surface, people were aware of some of those techniques, but it actually gets a lot more complicated in terms of some of the techniques and Without revealing too much, um, perhaps of what we're doing in our secret sauce, there's a, sort of an interesting story yesterday, and this is just a bit of an anecdote. Some yeah. researchers released a paper where they are now using individual fingerprints from a GPU. That's the the graphics card in a browser, and how they they're each individually they're each rendering something on the screen, but they are everyone's computer is doing a bunch of things at the same time. So they they have enough unique artifacts in what that graphics card is able to render for ones that actually have a a specific capability that they were able to fingerprint them. That is, the Mm -hmm. researchers were able to use that as a fingerprint for a browser. And so that's emblematic of how sophisticated some of the fingerprinting can be. The browsers themselves offer so much functionality, a giant parsing engine and your primary interface to how you use the Internet. There's just a lot of knobs and buttons to twist and turn To not just render information in the browser, but to also gather information back from the browser, especially in building up a series of of fingerprints or or breadcrumbs that can be traced back to a bunch of the things people have done. One of the ones that sticks out for people is is this fundamental tension between letting a site set a third-party cookie that is then used when you visit that third party. That's probably the example that most people are aware of. And even that in and of itself has been the, the subject of some of the arms race.
0: You know, I I think it, it's a little discouraging for folks who are trying to to keep an eye on their own privacy. I mean, this report finds uh, points out that um, it doesn't take long, even after you clear your browser history, uh, for things to kind of you know, reestablish themselves and, and uh, the folks out there who want to do this to, to start effectively and successfully tracking you again.
1: Yeah, the, ne- the nature of how we use the Internet kind of is predicated on using search engines. And search engines themselves, some of the most popular ones we use, are also tied to large advertising networks. So the, just the fact of how we use the Internet and the fact of how it gets paid for people might be surprised to learn that there is a global a globally unique identifier that's going to be assigned to your browser by virtue of using that search engine and then that specific identifier gets used all over the place because referring back to that bento box of sushi how browser pages get composed some of those little boxes in that overall bento box might be coming from some service provided by that the company behind that search engine and all that provides a bunch of telemetry. So sure, go clear your cookies, but then your natural, your natural day-to-day activities start building that profile right back up again.
0: Yeah. Are there advantages to using some of the browsers that that claim to be privacy focused? Does, does, does it actually make a difference? Well,
1: that's a, that's a really interesting and nuanced question because a difference is probably best described as differences in measures of degree. There's a bunch of different ways we could describe that. One of the first and most prominent things that sort of describes our behavior and how we use the internet is that conversion of a, of a name we remember into a sort of an internet street address, a, a, a name in the internet's domain name system to an IP address. And that process is actually rich with intelligence. And so along the way a new standard emerged and that was instead of you in your browser maybe using your your internet service provider's servers to turn those names into street addresses there was a newer technology that did that sort of in encrypted browser transactions they're not exactly a browser transactions they're not exactly a browser transaction but they're sort of similar to what your browser does and what that did was to eliminate some of the spying that can be done. People are concerned what their provider can see them do. And so this this standard emerged to change who could observe it. And the idea being that there would be privacy between, say, the person in their browser and whoever provided the information, as opposed to the old way, which was the person who was interested in using the Internet, and then all the hops along the way between them and the server that ultimately gave them the answer. So that in and of itself has sort of improved some of the privacy out there. So I would say yes, maybe with an asterisk, right? So even a non-privacy-focused browser is going to use this newer technology to turn a name into a number. And I guess all of the major browsers are also doing something. When we say major browsers, are we are we even talking about more than two, right? Anything based on Chroma Chromium and then... Uh, Firefox, but um,
0: yeah, I suppose there's
1: Safari. Uh, yeah. It, no, that's a, that's actually a pretty good point. Um, they all of the major browsers though, have an initiative to sort of build privacy. in. so then we have to look at what is a browser that calls itself a privacy focused browser? Well, what else does it do? Right. And so that, that's where I want to, I want to say it's kind of a tricky answer because they're, out of the box, they're giving you a couple of additional plugins. If you look at Brave, for example, their Shields Up is basically kind of repackaging some other plugins that people are already using. So are you getting a little bit more privacy? Yes, but one may also be creating a signal that they are unique. And I want to give you a little bit more specific example here just to, to go on a bit of a, a side path for a second here. Yeah, if you remember when "Do Not Track" became a big thing in browsers, right? Right, and this was a yeah, you could you could set that as a header that gets passed from the browser. Don't track me. Yeah, all of a sudden, a bunch of people thought they would communicate this this optional request to browsers. Excuse me, to web servers from their browser, and then hopefully that would preserve their privacy. But take a step back and look at this from a 20,000 foot view, or if you will, a giant collection of data, and pretend you were just sifting that data into two categories. All the browsers that didn't send a do not track request, and all the browsers that did. And when you look at it sometimes from a high enough level, just this idea that you, you are trying to preserve your privacy, but depending on how that works, you may end up also giving away some information, giving away some privacy. So to really kind of bring that home, do I think that the privacy-focused browsers do something? Yeah, and they they make it easy for someone who isn't an expert or even uh, a hobbyist in privacy to maybe get a little bit more privacy than they would out of a browser that didn't do that because they might not be inclined to tweak a couple settings or install a couple plugins.
0: So what's to be done here? I mean, what are the recommendations? Is, are, is, is, this, a, is this a hopeless fight, or, or uh, are consumers able to, uh, to take some reasonable measures here and improve their situation? Very fair question, and one that's, that's tough to answer, but maybe,
1: maybe it depends on how we look, how long we're looking out, right? Mm. In the short term, there is a lot of interest from a lot of parties in preserving privacy. And it seems that more and more people are becoming aware of privacy being an issue for them. The idea that as long as I'm not doing something wrong, it doesn't matter who's looking seems to maybe be leaving the social zeitgeist. So if you take that as a signal, that's a signal to the various companies who are responsible maybe for improving and providing privacy yeah i I think that I think that maybe more than ever there's an incentive uh, to deliver better privacy, and that's why it really matters that a the people who make browsers are trying to build better privacy protections into the browsers. and then research groups such as our own over at Norton, is working on really advancing the state of browser privacy and understanding the ways that the existing Protections are being evaded, and then building that into something that can get into the hands of, of someone. So it's not all it's not all bleak, but there's going to be an arms race for a while until maybe there's a big paradigm shift, and then privacy will move into into maybe some different realms. All
2: right, Joe, what do you think? Themes, Dave. <laughs> Themes for phishing attacks. <laughs> ah. I think that people who run fishing campaigns have a calendar, a lot like the Catholic liturgical calendar. Uh-huh. Do you remember the Catholic liturgical calendar? I right? do. Yeah, but instead of having uh, like Lent, there's tax fishing season. Uh-huh. And instead of Advent, it's package delivery scams. Right. Right. And I imagine this calendar in my head on a wall, and it's colored with like muted pastels for each season, mm-hmm. each time of the year. Right. Do
0: they so, change the, the decorations as the year goes by? Right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. That's
2: that's how I imagine this, this being. <laughs> okay. I don't know. It's probably completely inaccurate, but yeah. um, Jeff makes a, a great uh, analogy here. It is that web pages are like a bento box of sushi, mm-hmm. right? When you load up a web page, there could literally be anything on it, yeah. right? And it could be, it could have pieces of third-party web pages. It could load other content. I mean, and that's been a feature of, of the web since its inception, Sure, right? It's just the way it's designed to work. Yeah. So you don't really know what you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, I want to know more about this GPU fingerprinting. Uh, I'm going to have to look, look for that, that research. Uh, but I think fingerprinting is an interesting concept in terms of web browsing. Right. So the way this works is if, if I know enough about you as somebody who accesses my website, and there's all kinds of things I can get. Like I can run JavaScript on your web browser that, that collects uh, information about how big your window, your web browser window is, mm-hmm. right, and reports it back to me. Uh, I can also ask it to do some kind of uh, examination of your of your computer and tell me what kind of components you might have on it, right? right? Or I can uh, benchmark it, which is what they were talking about with GPU fingerprinting, yeah, uh, and and see how long it takes to process something. Uh, these kind of things are all feeding into a, um, a a some kind of large big data system that then is able to identify you. When you connect again, even if you've blown away all your tracking data. Right. Right. And yeah. it's a, it's remarkable how accurate it is. Mm-hmm. The GPU fingerprinting is just another piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Uh, I cannot wait for third-party cookies to be a thing of the past. Will they ever stop? I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think there are some web browser manufacturers out there who have a vested interest in not doing that. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at you, Google. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, Jeff makes another good point. It, there are really only two browsers out there. There's the Chromium-based browsers and then the Firefox-based browsers, and that's it. There aren't. Uh, oh, and you said Safari as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so three. Yeah. Um. So it's 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 interesting that that despite having all these browsers like Brave and and uh, I can't remember what the other Microsoft's Edge uh, Edge Edge is actually Chromium-based. Right. 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 Um. They, uh, but there, no, there. I was thinking of another one. Maybe opera? Am I still is opera yeah, still? Yeah, opera's thing?
0: out there. Yep. yep.
2: Uh, that's chromium based, right? Yep. So, you know, you're not looking at a large ecosystem. You're looking at a uh, right <laughs> at you know what seems to be a large ecosystem, but isn't
0: right. Not a lot of genetic diversity out there, right, in right? The browser exactly. World.
2: <laughs> uh, good question about the privacy focused browsers. Uh, DNS over HTTPS, or as they call it, dope. <laughs> uh is is very helpful. Yeah. But using privacy focused features of a browser is just another data point for a fingerprint, right? Mm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think about it, it's it probably provides uh, you know a bit one bit of entropy yeah. whether or not this person has this enabled or not. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to identify if they do. Hmm. Uh, because the browser actually requests that you don't track them. Mhm. Of course, you're bound by the ethical responsibility of the company you're asking not to track you because it is a do-not-track request, not an order. (laughs) It's a request. Right. Be clear about that. Uh, Jeff thinks that people are starting to walk away from the idea of, if I don't do anything wrong, I have nothing to fear. Uh, I really hope so. Yeah. I really hope so. This is one of the biggest—this has been traditionally one of the biggest impediments to privacy uh, and privacy uh, progress in the field of privacy over a long period of time. Yeah, uh, you know, I've told people you, you don't want to be have all this data collected about you, and they're like, "Well, it doesn't matter. I'm not doing anything that I'm I'm concerned other people know." Mm-hmm. Uh, but chances are, if you think about it, you are doing things that other that you don't want everybody to know, right? Right, and it, it's not anything nefarious. You know, it's things that just help identify you demographically with certain groups, and maybe you don't want everybody to know what you're. Median, in, or, you know what your household income is, right? right? Or when I have an appointment with a doctor, or when you have an appointment with a doctor, right? Yeah, uh, you know, maybe you want to keep that kind of stuff private. Sure, I think I think it's I think it's better that we're starting to move in that direction, and I'd like to see more people move in that direction. And every time I I I talk to anybody. I try to help move them in that direction by scaring the crap out of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Jeff Nathan. Again, he's the director of threat research at Norton Labs. And uh, the report is their Consumer Cyber Safety Pulse Report. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.